episode 423 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're going to be expressing views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our colleagues, our family members, probably not even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup and for more, Alan Rosenstein, who's the former national security lawyer at Justice and now teaching law at the University of Minnesota Law School. Adam Kandub, who uh, formerly worked at the FCC and then as acting assistant secretary for telecommunications information and now teaches law at Michigan State. Michael Ellis, formerly with the House Intelligence Committee, the National Security Council, and now a visiting fellow at Heritage. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We're going to do something a little different with this episode. I talked last week about the Fifth Circuit decision upholding Texas's social media law, but we really didn't get a dialogue on the case or really dig deep into what was said there. And I thought we ought to go back because there's, if there's, any case in America that is a lock to go to the Supreme Court in the next year, it's this one. So you're going to hear about this more. And so we we figured you should hear more about the issues and get a diversity of views. So Adam and Alan don't particularly agree on it. And I have my own views. So we'll get a chance to kick this around, not quite the way that opinion's been kicked around in legal Twitter, because it's really just been given the boot there. But I think that's unfair, and we need to dig into it more deeply. But first, we're going to do a quick review of the week's stories, and then probably get to the discussion of the NetChoice case about 25 minutes in, if everything goes the way we hope. All right, today's stories. I think it's about time we started paying attention to what Congress is doing, because it's going to adjourn October 3rd or so. Might be a lame duck but people are going to be trying to jam stuff through or kill it off in the next week or two. I thought I'd talk about some of the, the bills that have a chance. And one of the bills that always has a chance is the Defense Authorization Bill and the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which is a remarkably effective commission that looked at cyberspace issues, has been pushing a report card and pushing for more legislation attached to the defense authorization bill. Michael, it's getting pushback from the usual business sources. Which of the things that the Cyberspace Solarium Commission wants to get through are likely to get through and in what shape? Yeah, so Stuart, I think there's two significant provisions from the House passed NDAA that now it's make or break time to see whether they can make it through the Senate bill in some form or whether it'll be have a chance to in the conference as the NDAA gets sorted out likely like at the end of this year, because we're at the end of a Congress and not just the end of the session. It's for the end of the year or bust for the NDAA. So it'll be a question of which cars can hop onto the train that's leaving the station. And two of those uh, provisions are, you know, as you mentioned, started with the Cyberspace Slayer Commission. They've been championed by Jim Langevin, who's also retiring this year. So this could be a real legacy item for him. The first is a requirement for CISA to designate what they're calling systemically important entities that will be required to report cybersecurity information to CISA. So this sounds like sort of the second coming of critical infrastructure, right? The critical infrastructure category is way too broad. Everything under the sun is counts as critical infrastructure. This list has to be limited to 200 entities, so the really critical of the critical infrastructure that will have to affirmatively report information to the government about their cybersecurity hygiene. Now, there is there's, there's already a... a, a such a group created by executive order, right? Section nine of one executive order or another says these really critical people will get special government attention, but 
the, an executive order can't usually create obligations. And so this is putting some obligations on people who probably already been designated. That's right. And that's the pushback from the business sector. And in, in particular, the financial industry looks be leading the charge saying, hey, we're already doing all of this. We're doing it pretty well. And you know, maybe the venture sector is doing it pretty well. Other sectors may be less so, but are bristling at the idea of a, a binding regulatory requirement on top of the sector-specific regulatory requirements that some of them face from you know, their typical regulatory agencies, whether it's the SEC Comptroller, or... Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. 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 So this is a, a typical DC response to add a new layer of regulation when, when you're at odds of what to do. I think that the industry pushback on this will probably be successful to some degree and you'll see this back, but there does seem to be some momentum behind, again, really singling out a, a tranche of critical infrastructure um, to have an, a, an affirmative uh, regulatory reporting requirement into the government beyond the incident reporting um, that was captured as part of as part of last year's bill. And if you're a Democrat, you're going to want this in this time because you figure there'll be a Republican House, good chance there'll be a Republican House, and it'll be harder to get regulatory provisions passed. Yeah, there's some Republican support for this as well, you know, from some of the folks like Mike Gallagher, who have been champions of other cyber space other cybersecurity Solarium Commission proposals. But uh, right, this might be the make or break moment, again, especially with Langevin leaving the House after this session. You know, he's been pushing these many proposals. It's not clear that he can get through next year if he's gone. The second one is a requirement for federal contractors to provide what they call a software bill of materials, certifying that their products are free of vulnerabilities, or if they know the vulnerabilities, that they have a plan to mitigate them, which is a decent idea and concept, but the devil is always in the details of these things. And there's getting a lot of pushback from industry folks, from really the security professionals saying, look, this is a pretty big administrative burden, especially for small federal contractors. And it might not really be worth the squeeze, right? That there are a lot of vulnerabilities that are fairly harmless and you know, there's no real plan to mitigate them because it doesn't make any sense to mitigate them. So I think this seems like a, a good idea that just needs perhaps a, a little more refinement before it's ready for prime time. All right. So the other bill that I wanted to talk about, just because it has so, such a delightful menagerie of strange bedfellows, is the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which is a bill to say, if I understand it right, that it gives an antitrust exemption, at least for a few years, to um, media companies who are not social media platforms to negotiate with the platforms over the terms on which those platforms are going to get to reference the stories that the media companies produce. So, Adam, can you give us a feel for where this is coming from and whether it's really going to pass? It's, it's, there's been already a fun confrontation be, between Senator Klobuchar and Senator Cruz, and then they worked it out. Yeah. So you described it quite accurately, as I understand the bill. I mean, it creates what is essentially a cartel of certain types of news organizations, meaning all broadcasters and all journalism organizations, essentially newspapers that have fewer than, I think, 150 employees, which includes actually most newspapers. I mean, there's very few that are probably out. not the New York Times, not the Wall Street Journal, not right. the, the Washington Post, and, but everybody else. Everybody else, but it's also important to see who it doesn't include. I mean, it includes all broadcasters, but it doesn't include independent journalists. It doesn't include freelancers, and they get to create this cartel. And one of the interesting things about it is that, that the members get to decide 
who gets to be part of this cartel. And they can do it on any criteria except size and viewpoint. So as we're seeing with a lot of the, the fact-checking industry, and the, there will be standards that will emerge of what constitutes good journalism, which interestingly, some types, some disfavored news organizations may not be able to achieve. So you know, it does create this cartel. And then and I don't mean to be a little too cynical, but it, it allows it to suck more rents out of the um, social media companies, a transfer of wealth and, you know, right on the dial. So I, I mean, I'm sorry, this is a cynical way. <laughs> yes. So you're right. It, 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 it has an element of being nice to people on whom politicians are dependent for good press. So what's Ted Cruz's thing here? So that was a fascinating exchange. So Ossoff was apparently in India for a, he had COVID, unfortunately, and so he couldn't make the markup. And so previous, so- So this means it was, they, they were, it was an evenly divided judiciary committee. Precisely, exactly. And Cruz said, look, we're fine with this bill because the Republicans are sort of reverting to the, you know, general like, look, you know, we want power over the local broadcasters, too, because they're the only ones who, you know, write stories about us. So I thought it was more like the General Motors thing. What's bad for Silicon Valley is good for Republicans. So it could be, but... I, I mean, I mean, actually, I see echoes of your older communications law, where always the local broadcasters were the favorite of the politicians. But he had this. He said, "Look, you know, they can negotiate or they can create conditions for the special cartel, but they cannot negotiate or make any demands or requirements about content moderation." And since he said, "Look, you know, you can't do, let's say, what what was sent to." Amazon did to Parler, which is saying, look, we're not going to interconnect with you because you don't have a content moderation policy we like, or don't have any content moderation. This cartel can't do that to others. You can't condition that. And uh, interestingly, Klobuchar is like, no, I'm not going to take this. And she withdrew the bill. But then they <laughs> and, worked it out. I, uh, and then they worked it out. And, and it looks as though um, they, they, I frankly, have not been able to find the compromise. Neither have I, right? exactly. So we have to take it on faith that Cruz is a good enough lawyer that uh, it's Okay, but no, who knows, right? So I, this bill, mm -hmm. uh, Alan, let me ask you, does this bill have a chance? It's got critics on the left, critics on the right. And yet, you know, since it's bad for Silicon Valley, lots of people just say, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, if you can get Cruz and Klobuchar to agree on something, that suggests that there's a core of agreement. And I do think that we are still well within the tech lash, right? The backlash to big tech. And I also think it's intuitive, right? I mean, Adam framed it as the, the you know, news Newspapers getting some rents out of the platforms, and that's definitely one way to frame it. But at the same time, I think you can frame it the other way, which is that newspapers are getting some of the rents back, right? A lot of right. the value that the platforms get is but every, by everybody reads. This, you're reading uh, Facebook this, and the stories that are in Facebook, so it, that they can. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't, we don't need to get into discussion of the coast theorem uh, on this podcast, right? But you have these one of these classic distributional questions, and I, I think given the rough state that a lot of newspapers find themselves in, certainly rougher on average than giant social media companies, there's at least a. I, I think it is a fairly intuitive bill. Now, I'm not a telecommunications lawyer. I'm not a, a competition lawyer. So I'm not in the position of being able to really evaluate this bill in the broader sense. But I think on the politics and on the plausibility, you know, seems quite possible. Yeah. My guess is won't do what the newspapers hope it will do, that the, the companies, the big platforms are smarter and have more discretion and are likely to be able to find ways to subvert this, to to play favorites in, after all, the same story appears in 40 newspapers. If you pick one, he's a big winner. And it's going to be very hard to say, no, you, you shouldn't do that. So I'm guessing this, even if it passes, won't make as much difference as people think. All right. I, so 
Let's let's go to uh, Pentagon. There's a couple of things going on in the Pentagon. Pentagon is struggling. I always thought the Pentagon was full of people who were braver facing enemy bullets than bad stories in the New York Times. And this is a good example. This is a Washington Post story, but the same problem. There was a flap over uh, Twitter and Facebook found... 150 fake accounts that were boosting U.S. interests, stories that were favorable to the United States. And they took them down as inauthentic, as they do all the time with Chinese and North Korean and Syrian and its and other accounts. And that has so embarrassed the Pentagon that they're beginning a giant study of their whole approach to psychological operations and info operations. So, Michael, what do we expect out of this? Yeah, so you know, this is the, the classic case of Congress is trying to push the military to do something, right? This all came out of the NDA from a couple of years ago, where Congress gave statutory authority to DOD to engage in exactly this kind of information operations. But it, the trouble seems to be in execution, right? That uh, DOD is frankly just not very good at it so far. Some they which, never uh, will be. They never will be. The, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so, some of which is just inexperience, right? They haven't been doing it in the past. But some of it is just, you know, based on the bureaucratic restrictions that they entangle themselves in, right? I mean, in this article, it talks about how these are supposed to be personas, you know, impersonating Iranian teenagers. And they're just linking to Radio Free Europe articles and CDC guidance and official U.S. government web pages. Well, uh, shockingly, that this doesn't come across as an authentic Iranian teenager who's only interested in promoting content from official U.S. government web pages. Imagine that. So what do we get out of this? As you know, there's a bad headline. So you end up with a DOD-wide review led by Colin Call, the Undersecretary of Defense and Policy. He knows a thing or two about inflammatory tweets himself from his confirmation process. Yeah. But this will almost certainly cause all of the combatant commands to stop all of their information operations in this sphere, right? It's going to be a, a top-down review, which will you know, undoubtedly impose additional bureaucratic constraints and say, unless this is clearly directed by the White House or top DOD leadership, it's not going to happen. And the problem is that our adversaries engage in this behavior, as you know, China and Russia aren't going to stop. So we're going to end up unilaterally disarming because we can't figure out how to do it right. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But there is going to be so so much suspicion around creative uses of those accounts that I, I fear that the Pentagon would be right to not do this and that it would be dangerous even for the intelligence community as a covert operation to, to try to pull it off. They'd do it better, but they'd end up caught and somebody in our very divided politics would feel that they had been disadvantaged by those tweets. It's my guess at any rate. Okay. One more content the moderation issue. Adam, Facebook's oversight board wrap them on the knuckles for how they handled a cartoon that generated a lot of complaints in Colombia and it was taken down and but a lot of the takedowns were appealed and then it turns out that Facebook had also put it in in one of its automatic takedown things that uses a hash probably and they just left it there taking it down taking it down taking it down, no matter how many times the takedowns were appealed and won. And the oversight board said, hey, you don't know what you're doing, which I thought was about right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the risks you take of automated processes. Facebook gets advantages for doing it that way. And it's a big organization. And sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. But, you know, these sort of you know, organizational problems, I think, will only increase, I mean, are just endemic to the way content moderation is practiced now. So I have a new comprehensive theory of social media content moderation and why we don't like it. They just don't give a damn. 
They don't <laughs> care. It's not interesting to them. It's not going to make them a lot of money. They dumped it off on second-rate people who have produced second-rate artificial intelligence, and they just don't care. That's all. I'm going to try to bring this more often to bear on the policy issues raised by content moderation. But let me turn to one last issue and then maybe pick up a couple and we'll turn to the broader discussion of content media moderation. Sanctions on Iran. Iran is having a really heartwarming or heartbreaking set of protests against the mullahs and their determination to maintain the dress code from the 12th century. And the U.S. Treasury has decided that U.S. sanctions on Iran are actually hurting the protesters by not making it easy for them to Zoom and otherwise trade, you know, documents on Google Docs. And so they've released a kind of amendment to their sanctions that opens up a lot of exports that otherwise would be illegal to Iran. Yeah. And, you know, Stuart, you mentioned before that the Pentagon doesn't like a, a bad headline. The Treasury Department doesn't either. And I wonder if this is in response to Elon Musk offering to send Starlink terminals into Iran to help the protesters access the internet without, you know, government controls, if only the U.S. sanctions regime would let him. So now the U.S. sanctions regime has has expanded the scope of its exception, expanded its general license to to allow exactly these kinds of things. I think there's still a lot of logistical problems, you know, no, not clear to me how you'd get the Starlink terminals into Iran, you know, They're not, they're not that the, big. They're not so big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're still going to have to get them past the IRGC and uh, and the other security forces there and into the hands of the protesters. And that, that part could be tricky. Not, it's not as easy as getting them to Ukrainian forces across the land routes from Poland. A little tougher. And this is a problem that we've seen before with other totalitarian governments that when the protests start, they just switch off the Internet which cripples the protesters' yeah. ability to communicate with themselves, cripples the ability for the protesters to get their message out to the world. So I, I, I think there's, there's still, uh, this is obviously a good thing to do, the, the, the Treasury General license, but there's still a lot more work to be done on figuring out how to, how to provide Internet access to protesters in exactly this kind of uh, circumstance. Okay, and let me just do two or three quick ones, and then we'll get to our discussion of the Net Choice case. China Initiative, the Justice Department's China Initiative took another hit, a, a judge threw out most of the charges against a Chinese academic who had moonlighted for China. He was convicted of wire fraud and false statements. And the judge said, well, he did make false statements, but I don't see that he defrauded anybody. So I'm take, I'm throwing out the, yeah. the charges and that's going to substantially influence the sentence that he's likely to get. This is just part of you know the continuing bad reputation that the China initiative has been given by activists playing out in the courts. The, a couple of good stories from Krebs, who's always fun, Brian Krebs, Krebs on security. One, violence as a service now. We can see more and more cases in which cybercrime turns out to be aided by hiring people to beat the crap out of or kidnap folks. And that happened in the context of a couple of cryptocurrency scam gangs that used SIM swapping. One of the SIM swappers, kind of low-level guy who had just answered the phone and said, yes, yes, that's me, for about whoever it was they were pretending to be. And because one of the gangs thought he had double-crossed them, they kidnapped him, beat him up, put him on TV, pleading for his life. And we're going to see more of this because once you discover that you can get people beaten up anywhere you want, lots of other crimes become possibilities. And then in, in what I suspect is kind of 
Ukraine war news in disguise. A Russian bot master who was arrested in Bulgaria has said, hey, please extradite me, will you? He wanted to go to the United States and go on trial. He says he can prove his innocence. I think he just thinks that it's better than being mobilized. <laughs> but we will see. That's Denis Emelyantsev uh, from OMS. So you know he was bound for the front if he uh, it was sent back to Russia. Uh, all right. That's the news. And now I want to talk about the net choice case. Um, and let me kick this off by editorializing a little. It got terrible reviews. It was just dismissed by most of legal Twitter. And, and Alan was one of the dismissers, one of the more moderate dismissers, but it was bonkers. I think was Steve Vladek said it was bonkers. And Mike Masnick was, you know, really unhinged about it. I think everybody has gotten this wrong. And so I will offer my view on that. The, I used to do Supreme Court advocacy quite a bit before I got into cyber and technology. And I remember that people who didn't do it a lot did not understand what it means to try to persuade the Supreme Court to, to go your way. And several of the people that I appeared against, I kind of ended up saying, hum, 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 you can't say that. There's a case in the Southern District of the, you know, Iowa that said something different. And I've been citing that case for five years. You know, they, there's just law here. And the Supreme Court just does not care. They don't care what the lower courts have said unless the lower courts have addressed two or three things. They want to know what's fair in this area in this part of the law, and then how can we do justice in a way that won't screw up the law everywhere else? And I, if they think that the lower courts have gone off in the wrong direction, they're just going to ignore them. And they're going to ask, well, how do we solve the problem that's in front of us? And I think that this opinion is brilliant in ignoring the details of what was decided, you know, five years ago in some district court or a court of appeals decision that was mostly dicta and just goes right to what, if you're a conservative, is the heart of the problem, which is that there are millions and millions of people on social media who don't get to say what they think, even to their family, if Silicon Valley decides that, you know, they've used the wrong pronouns. And that is means that there is an enormous speech and expression interest on the anti-speech suppression, anti-moderation side that is enormously weighty compared to the interest, which is real by Silicon Valley companies in being able to express their own views and the views of their employees. And so when people say, oh, the First Amendment rights of the companies, you know, you've just ignored them, they are missing what is the most compelling point and which Judge Oldham leads with, which is you're really arguing for censorship of a whole bunch of people and and then claiming that the First Amendment allows you to do it. That doesn't sound right to me. So to my mind, he got that right. It's beautifully written. I think he is already a candidate for Supreme Court nomination in the DeSantis administration. So that's my first take on it. And let me just ask Alan and Adam to address that kind of fundamental question. Is it wrong to say social media is arguing here 
for the right to suppress a whole bunch of people's views. And that is different from most of the cases that we've seen. It's a problem that is much realer than we ever would have thought 20 years ago. So Alan, go ahead and correct anything you think I got wrong so far. Sure. So I think before I answer your question, I do want to address the point about, you know, what does it mean to argue before the Supreme Court? And I I take your point. I think you're totally right. And you've argued before the Supreme Court a lot more than I have. But of course, we're talking about Judge Oldham, not Justice Oldham. This is an important point, right? We're not arguing before the Supreme Court. We're arguing before the Fifth Circuit. Oh, but he is. He is. (laughs) Well, he might be, and he may be auditioning for yeah. a role on SCOTUS, right? I get it. I'm not naive. But I, if he wants to do that, then I get to criticize him for what I think is grossly overstepping his judicial role. In addition, it'd be one thing if he framed the opinion literally as, I'm just going to do what I think is right. But he actually doesn't ignore all the stuff that happened before. He goes through all of the case law. He purports to ground his opinion within the case law, right? And I think that the way he does it is very unconvincing. Now, it's not because I think the case law gives an obvious answer, but I think because, but nevertheless, I think he does not grapple with the case law in what I think is a good faith way. And I say that because he's clearly incredibly intelligent, clearly an excellent jurist. So I think competence issues are just do not arise here. Now, that is part of what my critique was, you know, in my long four and a half thousand word post on lawfare. And part of it was just the role of the Fifth Circuit, the role of an intermediate court, the tone. You found it beautifully written, and he's certainly an excellent stylist. I found it quite off-puttingly written in the way that I frequently find stridently left-wing opinions quite off-puttingly written. I am not coming from this as part of, you know, left legal Twitter or anything like that. I'm sort of equally alienated from all sides in this debate. To answer your question, though, I 100% agree with you, Stuart, that these are free expression interests of the highest order. And I've never found compelling the argument on behalf of the tech companies that either the First Amendment doesn't apply to users because these are private companies, as if the values underlying that somehow go away, or that tech companies should have kind of overriding First Amendment right. I've written articles against this. I criticized the 11th Circuit opinion that struck down the Florida court, that struck down the Florida law, rather for saying that there's no government interest, let alone a compelling one, in balancing all that. So I am pretty sympathetic, actually, as it were, right? At the same time, I do think that the companies have maybe some First Amendment expressive interest. I mean, I think that's the fairest way of reading the case law again, right? You know, I think Tornillo really is the closest thing we have, and we can debate about how to modify that. I also, however, and I think this is maybe the kind of the deeper substantive point, I don't think it's as simple as saying that moderation is censorship. Not because, of course, the actual act of moderation isn't censorship, and we can fight over whether we call it moderation or censorship, who cares? But rather because creating a communicative environment, creating a platform that people want to be on, right, has to require some moderation. And we all know that intuitively. We have to get rid of the spam. We have to get rid of the bots. We have to get rid of, at least on some platforms, the pornography, right? Depends on what platform and what you're into, right? We have to get rid of the obvious targeted harassment, Okay. So some amount of moderation is necessary. And the question becomes, okay, how much moderation? Who are we moderating? You know, everyone seems to think that they are the disfavored party. And actually, Orrin Kerr just posted a fun thing on the Volokh conspiracy earlier, I think today or yesterday, noting his reflections from when he was the Volokh conspiracy's comment moderator. And one of his conclusions was that everyone thinks that they're the one that's being <laughs> suppressed, right? But I'm actually also totally happy granting that there's maybe there's some anti-right, like on net, there's more, you know, anti-right wing censorship. There's no question that the company's culturally are very much to the left, though, again, query whether or not the platforms have been on net pretty good for conservative voices. I don't know what the case is. But my point is that you have to be nuanced about it. 
there has to be some amount of moderation, there has to be some limits on moderation, and which is why, and this is my main substantive critique with the opinion, putting aside the doctrinal issues. You know, had this opinion been written by the Supreme Court, in which case I'd have, I wouldn't be, be able to say anything about precedent, because of course, you're right, they're just, <laughs> who cares about precedent at the Supreme Court? To me, the idea that this is either has to be full First Amendment protections or no protections at all is incorrect. We have this thing called intermediate scrutiny. We have proportionality analysis. This seems like a classic example of where both sides have something really important to bring to the table, and these all or nothing approaches you know, what I call First Amendment absolutism makes no sense. I would like this opinion vacated. I think it's a horrible opinion, right? I think it's just a bad judicial craft, and I will stand by that. I would like the thing re remanded to the district court for reapplication and intermediate scrutiny. I don't think the Texas law will survive, but there is a way to cobble together a law, right? Taking some of the best, some of the okay parts of the different laws that would. That's my overall. Okay. Adam? Well, you know, I do take a different view. You point about legal Twitter. You know, I'm not on Twitter because I really don't like social media. <laughs> but I did write something for the Vola conspiracy. I think was the only defense of the opinion. And I thought it was brilliant. And I think it does, in fact, fall very close to precedent. But getting back to your original point about what's at stake, I mean, the Supreme Court in an unrelated context in Packingham's called the internet the modern public square. And I mean, there's some that... You cannot be part of a democracy unless you have an evil. And I also think the hostility, I mean, and then this is just me being a cranky conservative, I mean, the hostility that you get from legal Twitter, from so much of the, you know, intelligentsia and elite, I, I mean, I, I hate to, and this doesn't apply to you, of course, Alan, but, you know, they're just doing the dirty business for, you know, these elites that they can't do themselves. I mean, they are enforcing a certain cultural orthodoxy online about, you know, hot button issues that affect every day people's lives. I mean, whether your daughter is going to be competing against a boy in, in her lacrosse match or, or whatever. And it, they're really putting the thumbs on the scale. And whether or not the issues about private and, and public networks, however the law comes out there, I think that is sort of a real life issue. And then the question is, how can this opinion be so awful given precedent? I mean, the main precedent that really applies here is, as, as Alan pointed out, Tornillo, which applied to newspapers, which is a 50-year-old opinion, and then Turner, which is a 30-year-old opinion. So different facts, different law. You know, the idea that this is a home run on any situation or that any judge that it deals with these issues won't have to embroider and develop and change the law to some degree. I mean, I, I think that's that's bizarre. I mean, I, there there is no clear answer written in the Supreme Court precedent. So let's let's jump into that because I think that is where there's a lot of, of difference. The argument about the case law is that those were company broadcasters and newspapers have to decide about every piece of content that they give distribution to because they don't have infinite resources, infinite ability to. Uh, pass out stuff. And they make those decisions in advance and they bring to bear on it their own viewpoint. And that's not what is happening with social media, This it argues Judge Oldham. He says, they're doing this, they're putting up everything and then taking down some stuff. And they're taking down very little bits of it. And they're not telling us what they think of the stuff they take down by and large. There's very little expressiveness to the decision not to let somebody continue to post tweets unless that decision becomes a cause celeb like, like Trump. And so it, there is a big difference there, isn't there, Alan? Uh, oh, yeah. No, there's a huge difference. I'm not trying to argue that Tornillo 
obviously controls in some really straightforward way. At the same time, it also doesn't obviously not control. So just to respond to some of the points you made, Stuart. So you said, or you described Ternillo as being grounded in the fact that newspapers are limited in what they can publish. And so therefore, requiring them to publish something, which was the kind of right of reply statute in Tornillo, would overall reduce their editorial capacity. That is certainly one factor of Tornillo, and that is one thing that Judge Oldham referenced. At the same time, and this is where I get into my critiques on just judicial craft and being honest with the president, the Supreme Court in Tornillo, right after it said that, explicitly disavowed that that was the only factor. So they said, even if a newspaper, I'm literally quoting here, even if a newspaper would face no additional costs to comply with a compulsory access law, blah, 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 the statute fails to clear the barriers of the First Amendment because of its intrusion into the function of editors, right? Now, again, these are all these multi-factor tests and all of that stuff. My, my point is, right, and this is, I think, to, to Adam's defense, what keeps this, one of the many things, in my opinion, that keeps me from being brilliant is the complete lack of a sense that this is a complicated issue right, where there's a lot of uncertainty and some amount of judicial humility is called for, which notably Judge Southwick in his dissent, I think modeled really, really nicely. There's absolutely insufferable arrogance from left legal Twitter, Adam. I mean, you're right to stay off Twitter. It's not worth it, right? I question my decisions every day on it, okay? But I think it's a mistake to say, because this opinion so effectively trolled the libs, therefore it's a good opinion. Right. I think both sides are embarrassing themselves. (laughs) But I think that's part of what I think that's I think that's part of what's motivating it. Right. And I get the instinct, but I think it should be resisted. Right. Now, Stuart, back to the point about whether Tornillo applies. So you have the point about just general editorial judgment. You have the second point about, well, they're keeping they're basically posting everything and then only taking down some things. That's true. Again, I'm not sure why that is the only relevant factor. And then finally, I mean, I think if you look at the role of a lot of these newspapers, right, if you have a newspaper that is the main newspaper for a town, let's say, it is on many issues of local concern operating as the kind of, well, not digital, uh, print public square, right? And plenty of stuff that it does not post, we don't know that it didn't post it because it just decided not to post it, right? Is that, it's not, that's not shadow banning, but it's a kind of quiet censorship. So all I'm trying to say is that I don't think you can fairly read Tornillo, right, and not think that there is a strong case for applying some of the ideas behind it to these technology companies, which is why I find it bizarre that anyone can come away thinking that the First Amendment is just not implicated at all in these laws, when again, we have a mechanism in the law for dealing with tough issues. It's called intermediate scrutiny. And I cannot for the life of me understand why neither side is willing to say, yeah, this is complicated. They're not newspapers. They're not shopping malls. They're this new thing, right? And let's look at the law and say, is this law bonkers or not? I mean, that's the thing we always haven't talked about yet. Is this law bonkers? I think in some ways it's very clever. I think in some ways it's totally nuts. And we just don't have to pick one or the other. So let's talk a little bit about the law. I would say the two features that are most salient are a kind of due process transparent, which could be expensive to if people appeal, and the injunction that you can't you can't take speech down apart from some small cat relatively small categories because of the viewpoint of the speaker. I think actually my my bet is most people would say, yes, yeah, some transparency, some due process. We can't argue with it. Maybe it works sometimes and not others. But what about viewpoint neutrality? Adam, do you think that's a hill that 
the the legislature can die on. It does go straight to the complaint that you hear from conservatives and some lefties that they're being suppressed because, and we can call it content suppression if you like, Alan. <laughs> They're being suppressed because of disagreement with their viewpoints. Does that actually work constitutionally? Yeah. So it's important that the, the Texas law allows the platforms to ban different types of content. And the courts since, you know, was a town of Gilbert has have recognized that there's a difference between content based regulation and viewpoint regulation. Viewpoint regulation. Viewpoint based regulation is more offensive to the First Amendment, but you know, we can tolerate some content moderation, content based moderation or content based. And so, you know, the platforms can still ban nudity. They can ban harassing statements that would be otherwise actionable. They can ban dirty words. They could even ban, and you know, I'm working more with content moderation, you know, certain patterns of speech which are, you know, intent, which seem to be associated with function things like that. So, I mean, I think that the law allows to some, to a significant degree, what Alan seeks in a communicative environment. I mean, I think it still have that. What they can't do is ban all the COVID doctors they don't like, which is really very galling. And then, you know, as to the point of how can you argue that there is the First Amendment is not implicated here? I think Olden touches on the first step that it seems to me everyone misses, which is Editorial discretion, at least as it's used by the platforms here, is not their own speech. It's an action performed on other people. And if it's an act, then it has to pass the Supreme Court's expressive. And in order to be expressive, it has to have a particularized message that is likely to be understood by most and as you pointed out in the beginning, Stuart, most of these editorial, the editorial discretion of, of the platforms are invisible. They're not intended to be communicated, like shadow banning or like prioritization, where they you know won't tell you they're boosting this post but not that post. And so if they're if the platform's not even going to communicate how they edit, I don't understand how they get any protection because they're essentially just acts. They're not really intended to be understood. They're intended to keep secret. So that's a big hurdle that I think has not been sufficiently recognized. And getting back to your point, yeah, look, I, I don't think this law, once going in effect, would have a huge, enormous uh, impact upon content moderation. I mean, I think just the platforms would realize that there are certain games they can't play. Like they can't create crazy rules that, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop is somehow unsourced or whatever they said. And I think it would just add as a, you know, very raised eyebrow against their, you know, most average. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, so, so I guess I, I struggle to understand the idea that this is not expressive or that it's simply conduct and not speech. It does seem to me that Tornillo, and here I think it's either, either Tornillo is good law or it's bad law, and we have to assume it's good law, just makes these editorial decisions speech, right? Now, the question is, are they for expressive purposes or will they be viewed as such? And if no one knew anything that was going on at all, maybe you'd have an argument around that. But of course, that's not what the tech companies do. They do take substantive positions. For example, we are a platform that doesn't allow neo-Nazis on it. We are a platform that, that does not allow the KKK. We are a platform that, well, I don't know, I'd like it if they didn't allow Stalinists on it. Maybe they do, right? And now we can get to the question of bias. I'd love it if they didn't allow Stalinists on it, right? Or whatever the case, you know, or Khmer Rouge fanboy or whatever the case is. But it does seem to me that this statute expressly disallows platforms from doing that. Because although the platform, the law does suppression, content suppression, we'll use Stuart, I'm happy to use Stuart's term here, for harassment, 
right? And it allows it, obviously, it is preempted by 230 to the extent that it is preempted, right? Judge Oldham reads 230 quite narrowly. And of course, you know, uh, controversially and, too. <laughs> controversially. And of course, look, Adam has written this great piece with Eugene Volokh. He's written other stuff. The 230 thing is actually quite interesting. And I think Adam there might have, Adam and I might have some more agreement there than on this underlying issue. But under the law, neo-Nazis get to be neo-Nazis on the platform. Now, we can have that discussion. Do you want a platform that's full of neo-Nazis saying neo-Nazi things, up, like ugly neo-Nazi things, or ugly Khmer Rouge things? But it seems, and here's another criticism I have of Judge Oldham's opinion, deeply dishonest to say, oh, these are just hypotheticals, right? Who knows if neo-Nazis exist on the internet? So I want to push you on that, because I, I, and this will take us to a slightly different part of the opinion. I read his discussion of that as hypotheticals as saying, you're making arguments that this is on its face unlawful. And then you're coming up with the most unlikely or niche case and waving it in my face over and over again, Nazis and Nazis and Nazis and Nazis. And this is not a case where people are going to go to jail for getting wrong, making the wrong decision in the views of the Texas authorities. They're not even going to pay damages. They're going to get an injunction. Every one of the cases that the, the platforms are saying, well, we wouldn't be able to do that, is going to get tested in litigation where the stakes could not be lower for companies that have, you know, uh, some of the biggest market caps in the world, at least, you know, three weeks ago. Why isn't the, the, his rejection of overbreadth and his decision to say, look, why don't we let the courts bring us some real cases instead of these scary hypotheticals? I am not super committed to whether this is resolved as a facial challenge or as on, on applied grounds, right? And the jurisprudence on exactly when we do that is, is kind of complicated. I mean, I, I, one other that I'm not expert on. But it's just they're not, they're not, these are not niche hypotheticals, right? It's just there are a lot of neo-Nazis on like that desperately want to be on these platforms. They're constantly moderated. That's a hu that's like a decent amount of moderation. So I guess I just don't understand the idea that this is a niche hypothetical. It is obviously going to happen. Texas has decided that it doesn't care. Now, maybe that's the right answer, right? Choices have like, these are trade-offs here. And maybe in order to have a rich you know, free expressive environment. We got to let the neo-Nazis hang out. But that doesn't make it this niche hypothetical that Judge Oldham should like mock, not just the tech companies, but a lot of us from being a little worried about. That, that to me is what I find frustrating. Now, if at the end of the day, he still thinks, look, you know, especially because the remedy here is injunctive relief, unlike in the Florida law, which is, I think, really goes really, that's quite expensive. And the Florida lots, $250,000 per day, way, way too much. There's something there. But let's not pretend that this law doesn't do quite a bit more than let COVID skeptical doctors and, you know, Hunter Biden laptop sleuthers be on the platform. So I, I, Adam, I'm going to give you a chance to talk to that. But I also want to see if I can get just a little bit of discussion of what I thought the, was the most interesting and eye-opening discussion in the, the piece, which is the history of the common carrier status. Because I, Oldham's really making the point that the common carrier status, and which is basically any industry that's affected with a public interest has to have non-discriminatory access rules, roughly, and how it was applied to industry after industry after industry, and how some of that was solving the problem that we see today, where the industry was dominant. It was a, an oligopoly or a monopoly or a local monopoly. And 
Western Union, this just was a great story about Western Union saying, hey, you can't talk about strikes on in telegrams because we don't like strikes. And uh, we're going to give special treatment to Associated Press because they write nice stories about us. And if you're somebody else, we're just not going to carry your stuff. It was cl- It's exactly what people think the social media is doing now. And they were shot down in the 1880s under common carrier law. So I just thought that was fascinating and an insight into how we handled these disputes a hundred years ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, I should have disclosed, I forgot to disclose. I was, I served as expert witness for the state of Texas in in this case at the district court, precisely on that issue of the history of common carriage, which has been an area which has fascinated me for as long as it's been on sort of the the law professor business racket, whatever you want to call it. So are you responsible for all that cool history? Because it was great stuff. Well, I I mean, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I'm very happy that, you know, Western Union v. James was cited. I mean, beyond the content stuff, there was stuff about, you know, lots of states had rules requiring that states could not just telegraph companies could not discriminate in the delivery of telegrams because usually they would give their favorite customer the first ones. It's like, no, 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 you have to have established public protocols for uh, delivery, these delivering of these. So things. before you go um, too far down that road, I know that <laughs> exactly. we're going to lose Alan in a couple of minutes. So I'll give Alan a chance to express his views on those. And then you can come back and uh, yeah, I all argue with the empty chair. <laughs> yes, and I look forward to hearing Adam's final words when, when this comes out of my uh, podcast feed. Yeah, so I actually, in my lawfare write-up, which I was very, very harsh on Judge Oldham, I made sure to say the things I liked about the opinion. You know, one of them was the skepticism towards technology companies and invocations of the First Amendment as a general matter. And the other was this common carriage opinion. And if Adam played a role in leading to it, kudos to Adam. I thought that was by far the most interesting part of the opinion. I thought it was notable that if you had just read that part of the opinion in isolation, you'd have no idea that this was written by a very conservative, you know, FedSoc credentialed judge. It read like something that's straight out of the law and political economy people at Yale Law School, right? Not known as a hotbed of conservative thought. And I think it shows that there's a certain, I don't know if you, I don't want to call it economic populism, but there's a certain strand of this in which there's potential common ground, frankly, on both the left and the right. And, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier in this podcast episode, I think that this law helping, you know, newspapers get some money from big tech and the agreement there between Klobuchar and Cruz, right? I don't think they like, like each other as a general matter is another example of this. And so I think that's an absolutely, I think it's the way it's going to go. I think the Western Union example is interesting. I would caution against applying it too straightforwardly. Obviously, social media has social features that Western Union does not. So you can't just got to be careful about it, which is again, and I will stop beating this dead horse, why we, why it's very important to get the framework for these very difficult, very technical, very sensitive policy debates. And it has to be the intermediate position between an all or nothing view of the First Amendment. But I think that the common carrier position is almost certainly where we're going. And I would be very surprised if five years from now, this isn't where we ended up. I don't think it can be done on the state basis because I think you have interesting dormant commerce clause questions that we haven't even gotten into, but will definitely be another source of litigation. But yes, I think we can end this on a conciliatory note that the common carriage is is a great part of the opinion. And I think an interesting path forward. That's great. You know, I, when I saw that in Justice Thomas's dissent from the denial of cert, I think I thought, what? are we talking about here? Uh, But this opinion and the work that was done in the advocacy really pulls that up and says, yeah, maybe it is something that can, where we can learn from somebody, from people who were 
a hundred years closer to the original First Amendment than we are. Adam, you want to have the last word on this? Sure. Now, as you know, Justice Thomas was <laughs> very, very gracious to me in his statement on that. And yes, the common carriage is a simple approach when you say it. And unfortunately, in D.C. circles, it sort of triggers people because they think of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. But mild non-discrimination requirements of the type that virtually every business faces today, and which all virtually all public accommodations do, and which courts have worked out rules to make it work, you know, it seems to me that it should not be a difficult application here. And if it's not being, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. I, Adam, Alan, uh, Michael, thank you. Uh, this was a great discussion. Very civil. Uh, lots of surprising agreement, I think. And I hope at least takes some of the dismissive sting out of the, the ill-informed Twitter reaction to the, the decision. How it'll turn out in the Supreme Court. Actually, I'll ask you, Adam. I count three votes for the Oldham opinion. I don't necessarily count five. I'm not sure either. Uh, there's a recent article coming out in the Journal of Free Speech that I hope Justice Kavanaugh or his clerks read <laughs> uh, on editorial decision making and its history and Supreme Court precedent. But we'll see. I mean, you know, as you point out, this is a real issue that people experience. And I think if the court is turns a complete turns its back on this or gets its backhand, I mean, it will seem it will seem very dismissive and indifferent to you know a real crisis in America. Okay. So for listeners, uh, if you want to send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com will get it to us. Leave us a rating or a review and we'll read them on the air. And in fact, here's one that was on Apple from Memo Coder that I actually really like. This is one of my two go-to podcasts that I try to listen to every week. It does a great job of keeping me up to date. And the host is extraordinarily funny. I, I Maybe extraordinarily. is <laughs> At least I try to be funny. No complaints, although I wish we would hear more about about Stuart's pets and their opinions since Stuart refuses to represent them. Is there some kind of conflict of interest there? Yes, we have two golden retrievers. One of them is nine years old and she's kind of crotchety and old and I suspect agrees with me, but is afraid to say so because my wife would find out and she is in charge of the food and is a good Democrat. So I. So is it possible your golden retriever is writing their reviews on Apple? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably so. But the, uh, the young one who's under a year and is galumphy and uh, clueless about how, how the world could hurt her is almost certainly a Gen Z candidus. So uh, we'll see. Thanks to the Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 423 of the Cyber Law Podcast by Steptoe and Johnson.